0: Comes from Hebrews 13, 4 through 6. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. My name's Brad. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm happy to be with you this morning. Before we jump into this text, I have an announcement I want to share with you really quickly. Mother's, well, let me ask you this. What's May 13th? I ruined that. May 13th is Mother's Day. I need your help. Grab your mom and bring her with you. But <laughs> somebody just looked at me and said, No. Um, if you can, grab your mom and bring her with you. Not here. Uh, We've got a picture for you on the screen. 751 North Tresvent. It's a church building that sits half a mile straight up East Parkway. If you think about where Sam Cooper Boulevard comes into East Parkway, uh, comes into North Parkway, um, or turns into North Parkway just on the other side, just north of there, a few hundred yards on the west side, sits this building, 751 North Tresvent. This congregation, let me be really clear this congregation is a African-American, the way their pastor would describe themselves is a black liberation theology church of about 30, 40, 50 people. Uh, He has described us as a more conservative, contemporary church. Um, They are inviting us to come and join them for the day. With this in mind, that the two congregations might pray over the next six months about the possibility of sharing space together we would do an earlier service they would do a later service it's an idea there is no lease being offered it's just an idea in which God would have to move in dramatic ways in order for that to happen say why are we moving why would we move Well, our lease is up here in October, and we have loved this space. We have loved Charlie and Leslie, and we are thankful for this space and how God has grown us during this time. We also realize that our kids don't need to grow up with the memory of, what do you remember from Sunday morning? They told us to be quiet an awful lot. And so we see, uh, as you probably even experienced this morning, coming in for guests who are here. You know, we can get used to some things. They just become, oh, this is great. But for guests, it's kind of like, wow, where do I go? It's There are a lot of people and there's kids everywhere. Um, and so we see that in the future, we're going to need more space. And so we've been praying about that and seeking the Lord. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but honestly... One of the things that we've seen all across our city is that church buildings are being um, turned into condominiums. That's kind of the way that it's happening. It's not just in Memphis. It's been happening for years in other large cities. And so we see some possibilities for what could certainly be a win for this other congregation and what could be a possible win for us. But the Lord will have to move. And so, remember that date? It's two Sundays from now. We'll do limited child care for birth through preschool. kindergartners, and up will be with us during the service. That church will lead us in the service. So, I will ask for your flexibility. Jason has assured me. We sat down over some cozy corner barbecue last week and spent about two hours fellowshipping together. And Jason has assured me that we will be out by noon. So we will shift to 10.30 because we meet at 10, they meet at 11. We're going to meet in the middle at 10.30. And uh, right now, he and I are both planning to preach. We'll see. 15 minutes each is what we've said. So we'll be out by noon. All right, pastorally speaking. Um, All right, we'll get more information to you about that. Keep that in your prayers. Hebrews 13, verses 4 through 6. Man, this text dives right in, doesn't it? Gets serious really quick. Uh, Let me start by, in this way. I believe that one of the most underrated words in the English language is the word contentment. I believe it's one of the most underrated words in the English language. The word contentment, it's a noun... Uh, It's defined as a state of happiness and satisfaction. Kind of tough to wrap your mind around. I I love to look at a thesaurus when it comes to words. And give me some other words that are parallel to that. They're in the same genre. And so you get with contentment, satisfaction. I remember, I was, was, what's that? (laughs) peace yeah peace satisfaction peace gratification fulfillment happiness pleasure cheerfulness ease comfort well-being peace serenity tranquility i take any of those words on my tombstone and i probably don't think about that a lot we should I mean, cheerfulness, what a great word. What another underrated word that it would be said of me that he was a cheerful person. Wouldn't that be good? Today, we're looking at two subjects in this passage, marriage and money. And I can't think of two greater sources of discontentment in the lives of adults than when these two areas of our life are unhealthy and you know It's true what they say, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And That comes to marriage and money. It's not a proverb, but I think it's in the proverb somewhere. I'm not sure. Uh, it's true. Marriage and money seem to plague adults statistically as some of the greatest sources of unhappiness, struggle, and discouragement. And, and I don't say that today in, in order to make you feel shame or discouragement if you are struggling in your marriage or if you're struggling when it comes to money. It's just the truth. We all experience struggles. You know, I've been there before, driving down the road, get a text message or a phone call. Bank account, it's empty. Oh, I remember, (laughs) I remember one time, got a $20 bill in my pocket. Okay, I'll go put this $20 bill in the bank. You know, it's like, sometimes it's just that bad. Money stuff can be really difficult sometimes. Hey, marriage stuff can be really difficult sometimes been there too and so I don't say this in order to make you feel shame or discouragement it's just the truth we all experience those struggles and and single adults if you're here today oh they're talking about marriage and money well I'm only listening to half the sermon no you don't get a pass today because this passage speaks equally to those who are married as well as those who are single so here's the kicker As we look at this text today, you don't fix your marriage by looking at your marriage and you don't fix your money by paying more or less attention to your bank account. Instead, the writer of Hebrews is gonna show us that we have to look deeper than our own spouse or our bank account. Here's the big idea. The key to marriage and money is managing your heart. What's ruling over your heart How do you administrate your heart? The key to marriage and money is managing your heart. Joy, peace, hope, love, they're all rooted in contentment. And the writer of Hebrews is going to remind us that contentment is only found in Jesus. So if you want to be content in your marriage, if you want to be content when it comes to money, you're going to have to get to Jesus. So we're going to get there today. Um, We've been studying this book for, man, we've been studying this book for a year off and on. Almost done with it. And if you know anything about an epistle, here's the way an epistle goes. An epistle always begins with, who is God? Like Ephesians is really like, really evident in Ephesians. Who is God? And then you see, what has he done? And then an epistle usually moves to, and then in light of who God is and what he's done, this is now who I am, and then it usually ends with what I'm called to do. So so that's moving from gospel identity. This is what the gospel is. This is who God is. This is what he originally intended. This is how you screwed it up. Now this is how God fixed it. And now in light of all of that, now this is what you're called to do. Not in order to earn the gospel, but in order to live in light of the gospel. And so we're looking at some of the moral application that comes from the writer of Hebrews as he's writing to a group of people who have been struggling Their possessions have been taken away. Um, Some of them are in prison. All because they're unwilling to go back to the old Jewish way of faith. And they're believing in Jesus. They're gathering in small homes. They're worshiping together with all these people that are being termed, you little Christs, you little Christians. And they're being looked down upon. And the temptation is for them to turn away, to turn back. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, don't do that. And also be careful in these things. And so let's look in verse four. Here's what I wanna do. We're gonna look at these and I'm gonna share some really practical stuff as we go that can be somewhat helpful. And then I'm gonna tell you why it's helpful, but it also isn't enough. And then I'm gonna tell you what is enough. All right, look at verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The writers possibly addressing teachings that threatened to make their way into the church that did not honor marriage. If you look back even as early as the third century, you look at Origen, he was a theologian. He had some really kind of weird, not that weird if you think about it. uh, There's other denominations or even churches that would say, hey, you're more holy if you don't ever marry someone. Right? Can you think of people who ascribe to that? So, Origen said, you're actually more holy um, if you're castrated. And so, he went that route in terms of celibacy. And people say theology doesn't matter. I beg to differ. Um, So... (laughs) matters a lot um so origin was you know these were teachings that were being presented in the church and paul even warned specifically in first timothy chapter 4 verse 3 he said in the last days false teachers will appear who will forbid marriage so it's a good rule of thumb i mean if you look back you see even recently in our recent history there are cult leaders who are more lunatic who would say the same things. They would forbid marriage. Think about people like David Koresh. It's a good rule of thumb. If if your leader says, you can't be married, but I can. You can't have your wife, but I'm going to have your wife. It's usually time to find a new religion. That's just a good rule of thumb. That's what David Koresh did. Um, But what he's saying is within the church, there are going to be those who say you can't marry. There are going to be those who are going to not honor marriage, But he goes on to say, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Honestly, when I read that, that's kind of a weird term. The marriage bed? Like, what is the marriage bed? I got to thinking about that this week. We struggle with our kids to keep them off our bed because they love to eat food, and I hate it. I absolutely despise it when I, like, Uh, it's late at night I walk Cheez-Its are waiting on me it happened last night it was after midnight I have a lot going on and I walk in and I I trip over a Dorito crunch in the floor I got to think about it I wonder if we started calling it the marriage hey son get off the marriage bed our teenagers would probably freak out the what Um, so I don't know um What he's saying is this. He's saying when it comes to the marriage, when it comes to our marriages, and he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Ultimately, on a more serious note, the writer seems to be referring not just to the intimacy of marriage, but to the overall marriage relationship. That, That our marriage relationships would be held in honor. That with human dignity toward one another, And that that relationship would be undefiled. What does that look like today? That's really difficult in a day and time in which, I mean, almost everything we see on TV makes fun of dads. They look stupid. They look ignorant. You know, marriage is not held in honor. I mean, we even are, I struggle personally, you know, grew up, during the, during the 80s, I was like, man, I love Bill Cosby. Now we're seeing all, all of even Bill Cosby. Like, can't even watch the Cosby show anymore. You know, so all around us, we don't have examples of marriage being held in honor. So what does that really look like? Having a healthy view of marriage, I, it begins in an early stage in life. It begins in childhood. And it starts with a mom and a dad who love one another who display genuine love and affection. It also begins with a mom and a dad who model selflessness to one another, that they serve one another, that they give of themselves to one another. But yet all that's coupled with a healthy view of independence. Marriage doesn't work unless two people have a healthy view of their own independence. And what I mean by that is, I think it was Henry, Henry Allen who said, Be wary or be careful of the person who cannot live in community. Be careful of the person who must have community all the time. And so there needs to be a healthy independence within our lives in order for us to be assertive in the way that we ask for what we need in the relationship. Not expecting the other individual to read our mind or... or to always have the answers they're not god and so there needs to be an independence with a healthy assertiveness and all that i can tell you this all that is grounded in knowing your own story and we don't have time to talk about all that but we we need to do some work in our stories we do that some in our missional communities but all that's grounded in your own story you say well i don't know my story or i don't want to know my story like Everything about my life was unhealthy growing up. I didn't even have a mom and a dad or I wish I didn't have a mom and a dad, Um, at least not the ones I had. Missional communities are so important in our lives because it gives us the opportunity to do enough life with other people that hopefully we get to see some examples of what healthy marriage looks like. I'm not saying that we all have healthy marriages or that any of us have it figured out or know what we're doing. We're all on a journey. But it gives us the opportunity to be around some other healthy individuals and to begin to kind of unpack your own story and see what needs to be changed. Now, reading this passage, some people might choose to not get married because they would even say, and I've known people who have said this before, I don't know if I could be morally pure, so I'm just going to, i not ready for marriage right now. But if you really look at the syntax in this text, we're not going to get into all the Greek words, but that, that word adulterous, it speaks also to those who are unmarried. And so you don't get a pass on protecting the marriage bed and keeping your marriage undefiled just because you're not married yet. In essence, to have a healthy view of marriage, I said it began where? At your engagement? No, it begins in childhood. And... I just want to say to some of our youth, some of our kids who are here, kiddos, look at me. I'm talking to you, kiddos. Dating life is where a healthy marriage begins. And so as you date, don't date anybody you wouldn't marry. That's what dating is for. You say, no, I'm not dating to marry. Well, then what are you dating for? You're not dating to sleep around. I hope not. And so you're dating for marriage. And so you begin even in your dating life by saying, I'm only gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and see that I'm protecting my future spouse even in the way that I date. And let me tell you, to the world who's around you, you may say, man, that would hurt some feelings. I mean, I would have to say no. I would have to turn, girls, you may say, I'd have to turn a lot of guys down. There doesn't seem like there are a lot of healthy guys around me. Let me tell you this. It is one of the most powerful encouragements. It's an astonishing witness to the gospel. It might not be popular, but it's an astonishing witness to the gospel. When you're willing to say, I love Jesus more than the popularity that would come in dating you. I love Jesus more than dating someone who doesn't know Jesus and who's gonna, my wife's gonna head down a path that I don't want it to go. It's an astonishing witness to the gospel. When someone says, you love God more than you love an individual? That's crazy. It's highly unusual. The scripture If you look throughout the Old Testament, you see at least three reasons for marriage. And then I'm going to move on really quick. Propagation of children. We see that in Genesis 1:28. It's the first reason. Secondly, we see as a means of preventing sexual sin. Paul talks really, as the kiddos these days say, what do they say? Real talk? 1 Corinthians 7. Go check it out. Real talk. Paul says, if you're burning in your flesh and you must get married, then get married. So, as a means of preventing sexual sin, and finally for companionship, Genesis 2, it's not good that man would be alone. Sin hadn't even entered the world, it wasn't good. So, what are the ways that we can hold marriage in honor today? I'm gonna give you some good ideas that are helpful, and then I'm gonna tell you why they're not enough, but they are helpful, okay? So, how do you hold marriage in honor? This sounds super cheesy, I'm just gonna go for it. If you're married, touch feet in bed every night. Let me tell you what I mean by that. My wife and I, when we were in seminary, we sat down at this dinner with a lot of people who supported the seminary, and there were a couple there who were in their, probably their late 70s, early 80s, and they were telling us about, oh, we've been married like 50, 60 years, and we said, we we're really young in our marriage. We said, what's the secret? And, and this little man, he leaned over to me, he said, touch feet in bed every night. And one, Okay. It's kind of weird. Um, what do you mean by that? And he said, we've discovered, you know, the Bible says don't let the sun go down on your anger. Like, it's not healthy to step till two in the morning fighting. But he said, we've discovered if we can touch feet in bed every night, that means a few things. We're going to bed at the same time. We're sleeping in the same bed. And we're saying in that physical act, hey, I'm committed to you till in the morning. We'll get this figured out. Because if you're married, you all know how easy it is when you have a spat to crawl in bed. And you might be in the same bed, but you might as well be miles apart. You you can make that king size bed feel like half of a twin. You're on the corner, on the edge, you're facing the wall. She might as well be miles away. You guys know what I'm talking about. Touch feet every night. Only commit to speak the best about one another in front of others. And I encourage you, if you hear friends who don't practice that, grab that husband and pull him aside quietly and say, man, I love you. You got to honor your wife when you're in front of other people. Like, don't tear her down. Never spend time alone with another woman. Just seen some high profile pastors, some who haven't even, I mean, you, you look at the overall sense of what's happened. Bill Hybels was one. He came back and he said, I had a practice of spending time with women alone. Did he have an affair? Did he commit adultery? No, but it was unhealthy. It was a culture of spending time with other women alone, and he stepped down as a result of it. Six months before he was supposed to finish at Willow Creek, probably the highest profile church in America. He didn't finish well because of this. So, counseling, coffee, never do that alone with women. I don't, personally. Um, You may say, that's a little over the top. Like, in my job, I have to, do you want your spouse to have dates alone? Do you want your spouse to go to lunch or dinner with someone the opposite sex alone? I don't, and so I don't do it. It's awkward sometimes, and when it gets awkward when somebody says, Hey, can, can we meet for counseling? I just look at them and say, I'm sorry, I don't ever meet with anybody of the opposite sex alone. Nothing against you, I just don't do it. Never have for the last 20 years. Never plan to. Because if you keep really, you say, That's crazy, that's a strict boundary. Yes, it is. Because I know that probably 95% of affairs are never planned. And I can look at affairs and tell you that a lot of them aren't for physical attraction. You know what I'm talking about. He left her for her. Oh my goodness. You know what I'm talking about? They're not planned. How do they come about? They come about because people had boundaries that were not strict. And slowly over time, she showed some affection. She showed some interest. He opened up about how things weren't going well at home. Then don't let it happen. Set boundaries. Seek marriage counseling and advice when it's needed. We all need marriage counseling at some point. And realize it's a relationship you're in that's developing over time. And it requires constant attention and energy. And I don't say that in like a, that's a heavy thing. But no, it's just, it's a relationship and it requires constant attention and energy. And so that means you need to continue to go on dates together. My wife and I try to go out a couple times a month, just the two of us. Uh, We try to get some time alone every now and then. Um, We're going to Nashville tonight. I'm preaching an ordination service for a good friend. It's going to be like late. We've been up late the last few nights. We're just going to get a hotel and we're going to be in Nashville tonight. It's just for a few hours. But it's a few minutes alone. It's important that you develop your relationship with your spouse Listen. You're waking up to a new person every morning. We all are becoming. We're all on a journey toward God. We're all becoming the person that God is creating us to be. But listen, I'm married. My my wife. She was 20 when we got married. Did I know who she was? No. A female's personality continues to develop until she's 25. She didn't even know who she was. And so I'm married to a different woman today than I'm married almost 20 years ago, but that's okay because we've grown in love together and it gets sweeter with time if you develop the relationship. However, that's not enough. So push pause on that. We're gonna come back to it. Verse five, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Being content speaks to both subjects, I think, of money and marriage. And let me just ask you this. I got the whiteboard out because I want to get you involved. And we're not going to spend as much time um, on this second uh, idea as we did on the first. But when you think about contentment, I want to hear from you. What are some areas in life where we tend to struggle with contentment when it comes to money? What are some things that could be tempting to us that would cause us not to be content? They don't have to be things that are things for you personally. You might have a really good friend who struggles with these things, okay? So what do your friends struggle with when it comes to being content in money? More of it. Just more. More, more, more. Free time. free time. Just want more free time. Struggle with... Contentment in not having enough. Giving. Giving. Gets harder to do the more we get. Comparing to others. Comparing to others. Like what kind of stuff? Like my, got a new car. <laughs> what kind of car is it? <laughs> Lamborghini, somebody said. Yeah. Debt. What else? What's something specific? Like I, I want to know, like schoolhouse. M- school house. Like 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 um, oh, now that one's a tough one. What we need? Vacation. Like to the beach. Vacation. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, there's some guys in the room who would echo that. They wouldn't they won't admit it, but it's true. time and work. What? Time and work. Time and work. What else? Money to eat out. Yeah. We see all these people eating out and we're like, "I want to. We're broke." <clears throat> We planted a church in Nashville. Nashville's grown a lot since uh, we were there. We left seven years ago. And people go to Nashville and they always ask me, where do we need to eat? And I go, I was broke when we lived there. I really don't know. (laughs) 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 Nicer place, yeah. Okay, so in a big public setting like this, we're probably not going to get real specific, but my guess is that there were some really specific individual items that even came to your mind that you're like, oh, that's so silly. I'd be really embarrassed to shout that out. But it's really true. When it comes to being content with money, probably the better question is what doesn't tempt us when it comes to money, right? Not what does, what doesn't? I mean, we are tempted at every turn. Here's the danger, especially for Americans. C.H. Spurgeon said this. I've been to a lot of testimony meetings, and man, he had. He had one of the largest churches. I think he had the largest church in America at that time. And I've heard a lot of people share how they've sinned. And I've heard people come to me and make confession of sin. But in all my life, I've never had one person confess the sin of covetousness to me. Isn't that interesting? It's probably one of the greatest sins of our modern era, because we have so much, and it makes us covet all the more. Let me be clear, you don't have to have a lot of things in order to covet. Covetousness is an attitude. It's, it's connected to our longings. And so it reflects the attitude of our heart. And you remember the big idea from the day? The key? The key to marriage and money is managing your heart. And so let me give just a few suggestions. The only way to fight coveting is to commit to regular, to give regular increasing percentages of your wealth to kingdom work. It's a pretty definitive statement. Let me say it again. The only way to fight coveting is to commit to give regular increasing percentages of your wealth to kingdom work. Say, how in the world can you make that statement? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the more you have, the more your heart naturally bends toward keeping it secure. Those of us who feel as if we don't have a lot of money, we have this illusion. If I only had a lot of money, it'd be easy to give it away. If you talk with people who have money, you will come to find, if they have ever experienced life without money, and then they've experienced life with money, I've known um, a friend who was a millionaire who lived in the bathroom of the gas station that he operated and then got into the food freezer food shipping business and became a millionaire. And he would tell you that he was far more satisfied without money and that it was actually easier to give it away when he had less. It doesn't get easier gets harder we're more tempted to covet the more money that we have but listen god's gracious april 17th has come and gone and god's gracious because he's given you the opportunity objectively not to look over this sin not to say well because here's what we'll do i know i covet but then we'll compare I know I covet some things and I know I'm not generous but I'm more generous than April 17th doesn't allow us to do that because on your taxes you looked and there is a line item in which objectively you can tell just how generous you've been this last year and you get the opportunity to ask the question am I a person who covets Or am I a person who is directing my heart toward the treasure of the kingdom of God or toward the treasure of myself? Be content with what you have. A passage of scripture that has meant much to me over the last probably six months comes from 1 Timothy 6. And it says this, I don't think I have it for you on the screen. Just listen. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have, listen to this, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If we have food and clothing, then we will be content. What an amazing verse. We can do that. We can be content. If you look at Hebrews 13, we can be content. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, how can we be content? He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can do this because Jesus is the only source of our true contentment and he promises to be with us always. It's the most frequent promise throughout the Bible. I will be with you. Jeremiah Burroughs in The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment wrote this. He said, you worship God more by contentment then when you come to hear a sermon or spend half an hour or an hour in prayer or when you come to receive a sacrament, these are only external acts of worship. But contentment is the soul's worship to subject itself thus to God by being pleased with what God does, being pleased with what God does. The writer ends in verse six with this. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord's my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Here's a big question. What do we do if we're not content? What do we do if we do fear, right? What do we do if we fear for our marriage or if we fear when it comes to money? What's the answer? Well, we know the answer is Jesus, right? The answer is the gospel. How do we get there? Because the danger in traditional teaching when it comes to marriage and when it comes to money is to come up with a list. And I've given given you some of those lists. And listen to me, they can be helpful, don't get confused by this, they can be helpful, but they do not lead to repentance. Spiritual disciplines are not meant in order to bring about repentance, If you try to take spiritual disciplines and implement them as repentance, it's called works righteousness. So what I mean by that is, oh, when it comes to my marriage, I got to do some stuff. Oh, when it comes to my money, I got to do some stuff. I got to get some better practices together. And so I'm going to use these good spiritual disciplines of tithing in order to try to repent. That's called works righteousness. It doesn't work. Spiritual disciplines don't bring about repentance. Spiritual disciplines enable us to grow up into Christ, to look more like Jesus, so we don't have to repent so much, okay? And so as you think about money and marriage, um, I want to just remind you of something. You've probably discussed this in your missional community. Um, If you haven't, you need to. I just want to remind you of something that we call the fruit to root process when it comes to repentance. I think this will aid you really well. I want to share this with you right before we end. So, when it comes to sin in our life, what we typically do is we think about sin. We're talking about marriage today, we're talking about money. What we typically do when we realize that we have sin in our life is we say, Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm gonna repent. I won't do that again. And so we run straight to the cross. Now it's a good thing to run to the cross, but we can't run too quickly. Because if we run straight to the cross and if we say, Oh, I misused my money. I need to I I need to stop. If we end with things like stop or just simply sorry. What you've noticed in your life is that stop doesn't work. That's why there's professional counselors. I could tell you to stop. When you just try to stop, what you end up doing is cheap grace. In your life, you haven't really repented. You've just realized that some things are wrong, and you're maybe sad about those. Maybe you got caught. And you want your life to look different, but you don't know how. This is just looking at really what I call the fruit of your sin. In order to move toward true repentance, you have to look deeper, you have to go down, and you have to look at what I would call the root of your sin. Now, as you begin to think about marriage or money or whatever sin that you're struggling with, you have to begin to think when it comes to this sin, not just what, but why. Not just what, but why. See, when I sit down with a guy who's struggling with pornography, we can talk all day long about what he does. We can talk all day long about putting a filter on his computer, and while that might be helpful as a spiritual discipline to make him more holy, it doesn't bring about repentance. Because repentance is an attitude of the heart. If you look back in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus would say, it's not what a man takes in that makes him unclean because what we eat comes out of us. No, our uncleanness, it comes from within. And so something within has to change. So it's not just the what, but it's the why. Most guys who struggle with pornography, even though the fruit of their sin is lust, the why of their sin, the root of their sin is intimacy. And they're usually lacking it. So you have to look not just at your sin, but you have to look at your idols. And you think about money. Why am I in debt? Why do I compare? Why do I want these new things? What are you looking to do? Are you looking to achieve? Are you finding your accomplishment in, in achievement? Are you finding your identity in the accolades of others? man if I could drive that kind of car, if I could wear that brand of clothing, if I had that job, then people would look at me a certain way. You have to dig deeper in order to see what am I truly believing in that isn't the gospel so that I can then remind myself of the truths of the gospel, that God is glorious and so I don't have to fear others, that God is good so I don't have to look elsewhere that God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. And as you begin to think, okay, what does the gospel really have to say about this? How is Jesus better than what I'm trusting in? Then, as you consider that, you move toward real repentance. It takes you to the cross, and what it brings about is the gospel, and it brings about meaningful heart change. That's triangle's universal sign for change. So that's heart change. But what it enables us to do is it enables us to live out the gospel in all of our life because we move away from sin and more toward Jesus. And so I want to be really careful today as we talk about marriage and money that you don't just walk away with some honestly just some good ideas of things that you should work harder at or try more in, but that you would actually take the time to consider what am I really believing that you would dig deeper, that you would see the idols in your life and that then you would enable through the work of the Spirit that the Spirit would enable you to truly repent and to come back to Jesus. We can be content both in our money and our marriage because we have all we need. Do you believe that? We have all we need. Not to say that there isn't work that needs to be done in all of us because we're all on a journey becoming more like Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. We have Jesus and he promises to be with us, to be our helper. Arthur Pink said this, I'm gonna leave you this quote. Contentment is the product of a heart resting in God. It's the blessed assurance that God does all things well and is, even now, making all things work together for my ultimate good. That's really difficult for some of you to believe. Tough statement. Some of you hear that and you're probably thinking, how can I believe God does all things well when I'm hurting, when I'm tired, when I'm afraid and certain, when I'm grieving, when I'm waiting? When I'm discontent, when I'm sorrowful. Maybe there's some of you here, you're old enough that you realize that you have some wholesome desires that you're probably not gonna see realized in this life. And that's really hard. How can you find contentment in those places? How can we trust Jesus in those times? We can look to Jesus on the cross and see the only one who can truly be trusted, our helper, the one who brings us to God, who promises to never forsake us, the one who was forsaken by all in order that he would meet our needs according to the riches that can only be found in Christ Jesus. We can trust Jesus. He is all we need. As you come to the table today, we want to invite everyone who's a follower of Jesus. You don't have to be a member of this church. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have believed that Jesus is the savior of the world, and ask him that he would forgive you of your sins, and you've given him your life, we invite you to this table. And I want to ask, um, I'm going to ask Brad and Kelly, if they would come in just a few moments and, and serve. And then I'm going to ask uh, Charlie and Leslie if they would come as well in just a few moments and serve. And they're going to hold the bread and the juice. And as you come forward, they're going to remind you, this is Jesus' body broken for you. This is Jesus' blood spilled out for you. And as you prepare to come and, and revel in the grace of Jesus, and the one who can be trusted, take a few moments. Consider the areas of your life where you are discontent, and ponder what it would mean to trust Jesus in such a way that you would find your ultimate contentment in him. I'm going to ask those couples if they would come forward in our band if they would come forward and I'm going to pray. Uh, Father, we are so thankful that in Jesus we have life and we have hope and we have peace and we have joy and we have cheerfulness. And Father, I just pray for each of us in our lives, God, that you would help us today to just to unearth those areas of discontentment and that you would enable us by your grace to be able to repent. God, to be able to see the way that Jesus is better than what we've been trusting in. And Father, that you would make us a people who are holy, who are more like you. God, we've already been justified. Would you help us God, as you glorify us, that we could find our contentment, our wholeness, our satisfaction in you. Jesus, thank you for your death, your life, your resurrection, to give us hope and give us life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.